Father, thank you so much for this gorgeous day, and I pray that you would touch us as we study today, as we open your word, as we examine the truth of Scripture. Help us to understand, give us insight into this. And I pray that you would help us to be discerning men and women who know you and uh, are committed to the truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Um, Quickly, there's a little blurb here on needing volunteers for DBS. I'm getting old, guy. I can't see anymore. We are recruiting volunteers. We are recruiting helpers for one more VBS workshop, putting craft kits together. It's going to be Wednesday, June 11th at 9.30, so whenever. So if you can make it Wednesday, June 11th, show up. In this room. Okay. Craft kits together. All right. Sammy, you were going to... Yeah. I'm not sure who was and was not here last Sunday, but for those who were here, uh, at one point when we were talking about being careful when going to counseling, even those who are Christian counselors, with regard to whether or not they utilize Scripture as their first and foremost source of help. Okay, and how we should be mindful of uh, certain aspects of this and that theory by whomever the various theories out there from Freud onwards. And at a point, I said something that I immediately, I knew I didn't mean it the way it came out, and I talked to Al about it and asked for a few seconds here to talk. We forgive you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a Don't worry, we've all said dumb things. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I'd like to do today is finish up the talk on the various theolo- Christological heresies. And then I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about a book that's going around. I don't know if anybody's read this. All right. And um, I just want to make some comments on it. <laughs> um, 
We'll get to that in a few minutes. Next two Sundays, Dan Sams will be in here. We'll talk about the resurrection and ascension. And uh, he's done a lot of study on with probably one of the foremost experts on the resurrection, Gary Habermas, who's an apologist. And uh, that'll be a good class, talking about the resurrection of Christ and, and the ascension. And then I'll be back. Um, but uh, let's look at this concept of uh, the next heresy called docetism. Now, we're talking about docetic Gnosticism. Remember that? Remember docetic Gnosticism? Anybody want to guess what docetic Gnosticism taught? Anybody remember? You can look it up in your notes. Ah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Docetic Gnosticism taught that Jesus was not of material being. And that's what you see in 1 John, right? Where John says, nah, we saw him, we touched him, we handled him. You know, this is not some ghost walking around Palestine. This is a real physical being. But Docetic Gnosticism denied the humanity of Christ because Christ could not, not have been a human being because matter is evil. And Docetism is a heresy that plagued the early church through the first few centuries, basically denying the humanity of Christ. He only appeared to be human. He was not really human. Um, it denied the virgin birth. Well, why would it deny the virgin birth? Well, Christ would not have been born. There is no such thing as a virgin birth. He would never enter time as a material being. So all Mary was was a channel through which the Christ spirit came. Now, you hear that a lot today in New Age, right? The Christ spirit floating around out there. All right. And all I'm trying to show here is there's all kinds of different brands of heresy and sometimes they even mix them up to come up with new colors but it's the same old stuff all right docetism denied the the humanity of christ another one apollinarianism comes from a guy whose name is apollinarius um and this this uh apollinarius his wrestling was with how are the two natures of christ how, how do they interact remember jesus is fully human and fully divine. 100% of each. He's not a mixture of a little bit of that and a little bit of this to make some third nature, but he's completely human, completely divine all the way through. And Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the discussion there was over the deity of Christ and they really affirmed his full divinity. Remember that's the whole Athanasian Arius controversy. It did not deal with the humanity side of Christ at all. They just nailed down that Jesus is divine. That was the big heresy going around. Is he fully God or not? And they said, yep, he's fully God. And then somebody comes along and says, well, wait a minute now. What about the human side? We didn't talk about that. They didn't get to that. So Apollinarius was trying to sort this out. What do you mean when we talk about these two natures? So what he taught and he believed was the following things. The Logos, the Christ, the, the, the Word took the place of the human soul. All right. Um, therefore, because of that, he denied Christ's full humanity because Christ had no human soul. All right. Now, where did he come up with this? I think we talked about it a while back. He was a trichotomist. What's a trichotomist? What's a trichotomist? There's a dichotomist and a trichotomist. Three things, good. Three things. What three things? Yes, yes. She gets the gold star. Body, soul, and spirit. All right. 
A trichotomist believes that you're, you are made up of three components. Humans are made up of three components. Body, soul, spirit. The body is your physical, material self. The soul is your emotions, you, what you are. Your spirit is that component, that immaterial component that relates to God. Alright? So they believe body, soul, and spirit. A dichotomist believes that you are made up of a material part, your body, and an immaterial self, you, what you really are. Okay? And actually, um, the Bible, I believe, has more support for the dichotomist than the trichotomist because in many places, spirit and soul are used interchangeably. Alright? So I think the Bible clearly teaches that you have two components, a material self, your body, and an immaterial self with the real you. Alright? And the real you is, you is your personality, what makes you, you. That's what persists after death. But Apollinarius was a trichotomist, so what he said is, okay, Christ had a human body. We'll go with that. He had a human body. But um, he had an animal soul with the logo spirit in it. Therefore, what was Christ? Well, he was only two-thirds human. He had a human body. But the Logos was the soul. Do you see where he's going here? There's no human soul there. There's no hum humanity. Alright? Now, you've got to think about this a little bit. Where do you come from? We talked about this. You come from your parents, right? The real you, the immaterial self. Because God not only built into the human, um, human body the, the ability to reproduce a body, but to reproduce a soul as well, to reproduce after its kind. So you came, your immaterial self came from your parents. How does that work out? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All right? But you came from your parents. Where did Christ come from? Well, he was pre-existent. All right? He, he, he was always was. And he entered humanity by coming, the real Christ, he came in and he was fully human in the sense that he got his body from his mother Mary, his soul, but there's also the divine nature there as well. Both were there. Alright? What Polinarius is trying to do is he's trying to say Jesus was not really fully human, he had no human soul, so he was not fully a man. Well, what's the problem with Christ not being fully a man? What theological problem is that if you say he's not fully man? Remember we talked about that. He can't fully identify. He can't be the Redeemer, right? He's got to be fully human, all right? And he basically said the Logos is the pure archetype. That's, a, that's like the, 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 the pure essence of the reality of what something is of the human soul. So hence at the Incarnation, the human soul or spirit of Christ was replaced by the Logos. So the human soul got replaced by the Logos, which makes Christ two-thirds human. Do you understand where he's coming from? Alright. Well, what are you doing here? You're denying the humanity of Christ. You're denying his humanity. He was only two-thirds human. He really wasn't all there. He was two-thirds human. So, it denied his full humanity, but it did affirm his full deity. And in AD 381... Um, the Council of Constantinople condemned this heresy along with the Council of Chalcedon. One of the things you'll find as you study church councils is they call these things to deal with all these odd ideas that were cropping up. They had to deal with them. And uh, left unchecked, some of this stuff 
would have taken over the early church. So Apollinarian was condemned not only by Constantinople in 381, but Chalcedon, which is the big one, in 451. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, what that really did. Then another, see all these different brands, it's like watching TV, you know. Just as soon as you get one heresy, there's another one pops in. Uh, Nestorianism came along. And uh, it concerned itself with the human nature versus the divine. And Nestorius, he was a presbyter, an elder in the church at Antioch. And he didn't like the idea of a theotokos. Theotokos is God-bearer, Mary being the God-bearer. He didn't like that. Mary being the mother of God. So what he taught is while Mary was only the mother of his human nature, not his divine nature. She produced a human body, but not the divine nature. She was not the mother of God. Now what does the Bible say about Mary? She is the mother of God. Alright? See what they're trying to do? They're trying to split apart the two natures. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to split them apart. And Mary bore the incarnate Son of God. He was not some Frankenstein kind of thing that was born there. He was fully human, yet at the same time fully divine. And you've got to let both of those concepts stay in your mind. And you can't split them apart, and you can't try to mash them together. Both are true. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to split these apart or trying to find some way that they relate, and they, they wind up going down a bad path. You've got to be careful with that. Mary was the mother of God in the sense that she bore the divine Christ. Really, yeah. Uh, perhaps the thinking of, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Nestorius. Okay. That, that thought that way is because maybe he was thinking from Mary herself, the human being could not have come to divinity out of Mary. Right. Which is true. But she didn't. She was simply the carrier, but she wasn't the, the infuser of right. his nature. Right. So, God... Yes. Yes. And, and one of the problems is now, in, in Catholicism, they go a little bit too far. Because now for Mary to be the God-bearer, she can't be sinful, therefore she had to be sinless. You have the whole immaculate conception doctrine. Alright? Which then you got to wonder, well, how could Mary being be sinless if her parents were sinful. They haven't gotten to that point yet, working that out in Catholicism. But, but see, when you, when, you, when you try to sort this out too deeply, you can get yourself off the path. Alright? He wanted to use, instead of talking about God-bearer, he wanted to use Christ-bearer to refer to Mary. And so what he taught is that in the union of the two natures, the Logos, the divinity, the divine, unites with the man Christ. There's a division of the divine and human natures, but the union is not an essential, essential nature, but a moral one. There's a moral difference, but not an essential difference. So he fused the two natures together. Remember we said the two natures are distinct. Alright, they're distinct natures, but, and they, they are mixed together. And we're going to talk about some, in Chalcedon it really sorts this out for us, alright, to really understand what it means. Um, what the New Testament teaches, but he taught a merging of these. So, what he says is, he says Christ has two natures, moral division. Not only has two natures, but two persons, one divine, one human. There's two persons in there. There's a human person and a divine one. That makes Christ what? Schizo, right? There's two of them. 
All right? The Logos inhabits the human nature, but there's no union of essence. What does the Bible teach? There's one essence. So he completely separates the two natures. There's two complete, total separate natures. All right? And he's got the, the, the natures are separate part right, but he doesn't have right. The natures are compatible. They are fused together. They are, they are in, in perfect harmony with one another. He's missed that part. So he goes too far. All right. He was opposed by Apollinarius. Nestorius and Apollinarius argued back and forth on this. Um, some of these other guys here, they rejected his division of Christ's human and divine natures. And uh, what you did in those days, if you had a theological idea, you would appeal to the bishop, to, to somebody higher up to try and resolve your theological difference. And... Um, what happened is two groups arose out of this when they started sorting it through. And by the way, these are around today. You can go out to the internet and you can search these words up and they'll pop up some sites. Monothelites. Mono is one, theolites is will. One will. Taught that Christ had two natures but one will. There's two natures, human and divine, one will. Alright. The Second Council of Constantinople in AD 523 determined Christ had two natures, two wills. Human and divine, both together. Monothesites, one thesite nature, taught Christ had one will and one nature. Now, what's the problem with one will, one nature? What's the problem with one nature? What do you get? If he has one nature, what nature is that? Is it the human or the divine? Or is it a third one that's sort of like a mixture of the two? What does the Bible teach? He had two natures, right? Two distinct natures, yet they were in perfect harmony with one another. He does not have one nature. He has two natures. And again, we have another council that comes along to determine this. Now, let me quickly go through this, then we'll get to the Chalcedon. Eutychianism, a guy named Eutychus, <laughs> um, taught if there was to be a union of persons, there must be a union of natures. One person means one nature or one essence. This essence was a single the anthropic God man nature it was a what he's saying is the two natures were mashed together into a third kind of nature alright it was that third nature was not completely human it wasn't completely divine it was a different nature altogether alright so see what's going on here Christ has one nature two natures is the one nature human nature is the one nature divine nature is the one nature a mixture of both into some kind of third kind of nature and the Bible teaches he had a fully human nature, fully divine nature, separate. He didn't have an amalgamation of the two natures into some kind of third, not really divine, not really human nature. And yet that's what Eutychus taught. Well, see what they're trying to do? They're trying to sort out what is Christ, what is the, how does the human and the divine nature in Christ relate? That's what all of these are coming, the bottom line of all of this is how do the two natures of Christ relate? Are they separate? Yes. Are they one? Are they one that's a different than the two that's, you know, like I mixed human and divine, I get some kind of third nature? That's what they're trying to sort out. And what the Council of Chalcedon does in just a couple of slides here where it really sorts it out is it says, no, there's two natures, they are distinct, yet they are in perfect harmony with one another. He is fully human, he is fully divine. 
He's not a mixture of both in the sense that you come up with some kind of third kind of nature that is really neither fully human, neither fully divine. That's what we're getting at here. Um, some of them blended this human nature of Christ into the divine nature. So really Christ was a deified human being. He really wasn't fully human. He was a deified human. He became God. The human nature became God. And the distinctions between these two natures are destroyed in his theology. There is no distinct human or distinct divine. Rather, there's a third nature that's neither. It's a mixture of the both. And then as this developed this idea of theopacitism, the idea that God suffered and died on the cross. Um, in fact, this is, unfortunately, this is hinted at in this book here that, that um, is going around. The idea that God the Father suffered on the cross along with Christ. All right? We'll, we'll get to that. Huh? Yeah. Um, the idea that God suffered and died on the cross in the sense that in Christ's passion, not only did the human nature of Christ suffer death, but also the divine nature died as well. See what it's saying? Divine nature. Well, can God die? Can the divine nature die? Christ could die as a human being, but not as God. And what they wanted to say, well, not only did Christ's human nature die, the divine nature died, therefore the divine nature died, you have the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then in a sense all three of them died. You see where you're going with that? So God the Father died on the cross. Well, we got problems there. Because God the Father did not die on the cross. Christ died on the cross. Because God on your son. Yeah. Yes. Yes. God the Father did not die on the cross. You gotta, you gotta be careful because that that's heretical, a heretical viewpoint. So both of these resulted in this council called Chalcedon, which is probably one of the most definitive church councils um, that ever occurred. Um, it was called in AD 451, and the question here is not Christ's deity. That's been dealt with in Nicaea. It's fully human, fully divine. Now they're going to say, okay, well, what is the nature of Christ's human nature? What, what, what does that look like? Um, it was the largest council they ever came up. About 520 church leaders from all over the Roman Empire, all over the empire came together. And the bottom line is it condemned both Nestorianism and Eutychianism. Both of these were condemned. And it affirmed this. Jesus Christ was vera homo and vera deus. Truly human. That's Latin. Truly human. Truly God. Both. All right. He's not a mixture of the two and, and, and a third kind of thing. He's 100% human, 100% divine, one person, one being. Okay? Four fifty one was not Roman Roman Catholicism didn't come along until about six hundred, seven hundred. So as a as a system, Roman Catholicism was not yet. Three twenty, but he was not Roman Catholic. He started the, the, the movement that wound up being Roman Catholicism later on. Alright. Yeah, Roman, now it depends on who you talk with. If you talk to the Roman Catholics, they say, well, Peter started the whole thing. Actually, Christ did um, with Peter. Um, there's no historical support for that, whatever. Um, most historians start, um, define the start of Catholicism as a system around 
I'm trying to think, 687, somewhere around in there with Gregory the first. All right. Bishop is church leader. It's not Roman Catholic bishop. Right, right. And again, here, here's one of the things. We've got to we go back into that time. The bishop was the head of the church in a particular region, basically. You know, he was the head theologian, sort of. You know, the head of the Antioch church or the head of the Alexandrian church or whatever. Um, these were the leaders of the church. And they came together to determine this. But this was before Catholicism. Even today, bishop is not a strictly Catholic only. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. False people think of it as that, because that's what they see, you know, the bishop with the pointy hat and all that. That's not what you have here, okay? Um, so Chalcedon in part stated this. Jesus was vera homo and vera dios, truly man and truly God, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, confessed in two natures, Without confusion, without mixture, without division, without separation, each nature retaining its own attributes. That's really the quote out of... Now, that's translated to English for us, because they didn't have English there. All right. But basically, look what it's saying here. Jesus Christ was truly man and truly God. So it's affirming the true humanity, true deity. He is one and the same Christ. One person, two natures. Son, Lord, only begotten. This is the, using the um, terms that we find in the New Testament. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is Lord. He's the only begotten Son of God. And he is confessed in two natures. These two natures are, look what it says here, without confusion. What does that mean? They're not, they're not mixed into a third nature. They are not confused together. That's the idea of confusion. They're not mixed together in something third Without mixture, what does that mean? Each nature retains its own independent set of attributes. All right? Without division, they are not two completely, they are not um, separate in the sense that he has two wills, two, two, two beings in there. That's what's trying to get you. are not two distinct beings. Two natures, not two distinct beings. And without separation. All right? They're in harmony together. They're in harmony. And each nature retains its own attributes. The human does not... Here's understand. The human nature does not give up any attribute. The divine nature does not give up any attribute. That means Jesus did not give up any divine attribute when he became a man. And the human nature did not get new attributes that it did not have by being with the divine. He was fully human fully divine. And there's a point in which you're not going to sort that whole thing out. All right? You're not going to figure it all out. You got to go with it. Right. Yeah, he was fully he was fully human. And the human humanity did not take on a a different kind of humanity because it just happened to have the divine nature there. So he could still feel, and this, this is very important, see the full humanity is necessary because he has to be able to understand our weaknesses, understand our temptations. He was tempted. He was tired. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He fully experienced what it was like to be a human being. So we, he, we have a sympathetic high priest. That's what Hebrews is saying. 
And if, he, if, he, if this human nature was some kind of superhuman nature, then he wouldn't experience what we experience, right? Right. He was fully human. All the, all the frailties of humanity he had. Not sin. Not sin. But he knew what it was like to get tired and to get wore out. And to, he, he knew he suffered. Every temptation that you face, Christ did. <laughs> to the ultimate degree, he did. And he didn't, he didn't fall into sin. So these four withouts are called the four negatives of Chalcedon. The four negatives. Without, 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 without. Without confusion, what does that do? Well, that condemns Eutychianism and monophytism. Monophytism is one essence, one nature. No, he's two natures. He's two distinct nature, human, divine. Without mixture condemns Eutychianism and monophytism, where they want to say, well, the two natures were mixed together and you had this third one come out. You know, sort of like missing, you know, blue and yellow paint and you get green or something like that. No, that's not what it's like. Each retains its own distinctiveness. Without mix, without division, Christ is not divided. There's, there, there's, there's a unity to Christ. Both natures are exist in harmony. And without separation, again, both are there. They're not separated out. They're distinct but not separate. That, it's hard to think in those terms. They're distinct but not separate. And what it's trying to do is it's trying to deal with all of these, these heresies that pop up here. And in fact, even today, when you talk about some of these heresies, they go back to, say, they go back and quote Chalcedon. I mean, Chalcedon was really the definitive council that dealt with the humanity and deity of Christ. And the church affirmed that Christ was fully human, fully divine, one being. Each nature retained its own attributes. What does that mean? The natures are not mixed into a third. It means the human nature does not take on divine attributes. The divine nature does not take upon human attributes. Separate. All right. Earlier when Luke asked about that third nature, how would that play out? What would that look like? It, I'm still thinking about that question because, I mean, certainly we're not believing that there is such a thing. But I think her question was, since they said mm-hmm. there was such a thing, how would Jesus have been as that kind of amalgamation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't be totally God, he couldn't be totally human, and mm-hmm. so therefore, how did they come up with that notion in the first place? And see, that's, what happens there is that when, and we talked about this last week, when we try to bring our human understanding of things onto the divine, we've got to be very careful because we, we're apt to try and twist the divine into something that we can relate to, that we can understand. And there's value in trying to understand biblical things. It's not saying, well, just chuck your brain at the door and don't think about it. No, we need to think about it. But we also need to go as the, the, the starting point, the definitive point, is what does the Scripture say? And then all of our thinking has to relate to what does God say about himself? You see where I'm trying to get at? What does God say? Not what do I think God is like, but what does God say he is like? That's what I go with. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully human. I have to, wherever, whatever theology I come up with about Christ has to take into account he is 100% fully human. It also teaches he is fully divine. So whatever I come up with, he is 100% totally fully 
divine. And I've got to let it rust at that. And if I try to mix them together, I'm going to wind up somewhere with one of these guys. Yeah. But what do you expect pagans to do? You know. Yeah. Yeah, and that didn't work out very well. Um, Chalcedon was one of the most definitive of all church councils, with the possible exception of Nicaea. Um, and I mean, this thing lasted for you know 1,500 years. Whenever the reformers needed to deal with the humanity of Christ, who's reformers? Calvin, Knox, you know, Martin Luther. When all, when they ever had to talk about the uh, humanity of Christ, they always referred back to the Council of Chalcedon. So a thousand years after this council, it's still being quoted. All right, that's how definitive it was. Very important. I don't have it in this one. I had it in a previous one. Yeah, not in this set here. There's about seven of them. Um, some other Christological heresies that popped up real quickly. Um, adoptionism, canonicism. These are all fancy words. You can wow people with this. And hypostatic Christology, dynamic incarnation. What are these, anyways? Um, well, adoptionism taught that Jesus was adopted by the Father at his baptism. I think we talked about this. But that keeps popping up again and again and again. Um, the New Agers have this concept here. Um, and what it really teaches is man becomes God, not God becomes man. Jesus was this man walking around doing good things, and bang, here comes the Christ Spirit, and now he's all of a sudden divine. All right? And what they do is they use the term only begotten to support the idea, their idea, that Jesus became the Son of God. The human Jesus became the Son of God. He was not the Son of God. He became it by virtue of being adopted by the Father. All right? And the problem here, of course, is what do you do with the virgin birth and the pre-existence of Christ? Christ could not be pre-existent, right? He's just a man. He got adopted by God, and bang, here he comes divine. All right? Canonicism, and we talked about this, I think, last week, says Jesus Christ set aside his deity. When he became man, he ceased being God. He ceased being God. Um, and the emptying took the form of exchange. What Christ did is he exchanged the attributes of deity for the attributes of humanity. He did a switch. He gave up the divine nature and took upon himself a human nature. All right? What does the Bible teach? He retained the divine nature. He did not give it up. What did he give up? He gave up the independent use of that. He was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Father. But he still retained all the essential attributes of deity. All right? The only divine attributes retained by Christ were his moral qualities. But he gave up all the deity qualities of omniscience, omnipresence, all that. He gave that up. The Bible, and we talked about this last week, no, the Bible does not teach that Christ gave up any... You can't not become what you are. You can't decide to say, I'm going to stop being a human. That's part of what you are. You are human. You can't give up an essential component of what you are. Neither can God. If God gave up deity, the universe doesn't exist. 
right? And it's sort of like um, this concept of modalism. Remember where the second person of the Trinity is God or man, but not both at the same time. Christ was deity, became a man in his incarnation, and then became deity again. So Christ, this is what it's saying. Christ is the second member of the Trinity, fully divine. He gave up divinity to become fully human. And then when he was exalted again, he took all the divine attributes back. He sort of swapped them out. No, he didn't swap any attributes out. All right. Christ is fully God, fully man at the same time. He's not one at one time. See, see what this saying is he was God, then he became man, then he became God again. No. He's fully God, fully man at the same time. This and hypostatic and is against hypostatic is the union. Teaches Christ's human nature was impersonal, had no independent subsistence. Therefore, Jesus had no independent existence apart from Christ. The human is completely swallowed up in the divine. There was no human nature. It was totally swallowed up in the divine nature. He didn't have a human nature at all. He, he, the human nature was totally consumed by the divine nature in the incarnation. So that denies the human nature even is there at all. It's not that it just got mixed up. It got erased, replaced. And then dynamic incarnation talks about while the incarnation is, that's the active presence of God in this person, Jesus. So Jesus is not God. He's a person, but the, dynamically God is in Jesus in the form of Christ. And basically it's almost like Jesus gets fully indwelled by the second member of the Trinity. The man, Jesus, got fully indwelled by the second member of the Trinity. And because of that, the man lost his independent nature. He was not human. See all the mixtures of this, how it all gets all mixed up, and it's all, it's just all mixed up. Well, hopefully we're done with the Christological heresies. And, and what you see today when you look at, um, you know, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, and the next odd thing that comes along, is people are trying to understand in their human viewpoint the divine nature of God. And you can't do that. You've got to let God tell you what he is like. All right, and go with that. Now, with that in mind, um, I was introduced to this book this week, and I—you can see—I read it last. Actually, I read that last night, believe it or not. Um, I read the whole thing. Well, most of the whole thing last night. Um, and it's interesting because I went out to the website, I went out to the internet, and I looked up this book, and there's all kinds of endorsements by it. I mean, they're coming out, I mean, everybody and their brothers coming out saying this is the greatest book since Pilgrim's Progress. Um, one of them, I think it's, uh, who did the message? Um, Eugene Peterson said this is the Pilgrim's Progress for this age. You know, this is, this is the Pilgrim's Progress. So they put it right up there with the Pilgrim's Pro Progress. And uh, Michael W. Smith is behind it. He says it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great book. Um, Winona Judd, if you're a... If you're a country music person, Winona thinks it's a great book. Um, and I, I saw all kinds of... of uh, uh, William P. Young. And really what he did is he wrote it sort of... And, and actually he um, published it himself, self-published. He couldn't get anybody to publish the thing. So a friend of his and went out and they... And this is up to about a million copies now that, that have sold in this thing. It's like number 17 on Amazon. All right. I mean, it's it's a hot selling book, and and what it basically is the bottom, 
Any, has anybody read this in here? All right. Well, I'm going I'm to give away sort of the plot. I, I hate to do that, but I have to give away the plot to help you understand what's going on. But um, basically the idea is this guy named McKenzie, um, his daughter, he had a little daughter that was abducted and killed by a serial killer in this shack. That's why it's called the shack. And they found her bloody dress in the shack, but they couldn't find his daughter. She was killed by this serial killer bad guy kind of thing. And he then becomes completely um, taken up by his great distress, his great sadness, that, that why would God have something like this happen? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? He's struggling with, you know, why, why would a loving God do this? And uh, he gets a note in the mailbox from somebody called Papa that invites him to the shack, back to the shack where this crime occurred, supposedly. And he's struggling on whether he should go or not. But finally, the bottom line is he goes back to the shack. And at the shack, he meets the Trinity that shows up. Um, God the Father is personified as a, um, in the book as a large Afro-American woman called Papa. And the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person, is a Arab, Middle Eastern Arab man. And then the Holy Spirit is an Asian woman, Sariah, I think it's the name of it. Um, that's the Holy Spirit. And he meets the members of the Trinity who then, through a series of dialogues with him, help him work through this great pain that he has. Um, and in doing so, they, they are, you see the dynamic relationship, at least in this book, is portrayed between the members of the Trinity. All right? And there's also a theology. Now, let me explain um, what, what this thing does. This is a work of fiction. All right? What is fiction? It's not true. Okay? It's not true. However, in this work of fiction, what this man discusses is a theodicy. What's theodicy? Remember we used that big fancy word? Theodicy. Evil. The question of evil. How does evil... How, how would God, a good God allow evil things to happen? Especially to my little girl where she was abducted and killed by this very evil person. Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Okay? We defined it a few weeks back. All right? What's the doctrine of, of evil? How, how does God allow evil in the universe? I want to make sure I don't run out of time here. Um, so he's struggling with this. But what happens is, is in the course of this narrative, what you're seeing is an interplay between the Trinity. All right? And, and here's, here's, here's the problem. Here, here's, here's where you can get yourself into trouble. When I read that, I have an orthodox view of the Trinity. Other people don't. And in fact, there are people that said they didn't understand how the Trinity worked until they read this book. The problem is, this book does not accurately depict how the Trinity operates. See what I'm getting at? It does not accurately portray how the Trinity operates. Alright? Um, a couple of examples in here. and I, I got You can see all the little stickers I put in here of all the quotes in the book, so I'm not making it up. But there's one section in there where Papa is talking about a hierarchy, the concept of a hierarchy. And he basically says hierarchy is a human construction. It's part of the evil fallenness that you humans, you have to have a hierarchy to deal with things. In the Trinity, we don't have a hierarchy. We're all mutually submissive to one another. Now, is there an element of truth in that? There's an element of truth in that. There is. But is there a hierarchy in the Trinity? Yes. How do you know there's a hierarchy in the Trinity? 
In what sense is there a hierarchy? Redemption, right? In redemption, what did the Father do? He sent the Son. What did Jesus Christ say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. All right. So in the drama of redemption, there certainly is a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy. And the Holy Spirit, why did the Holy Spirit come? Christ sent the Spirit. All right. So in the drama of redemption, you certainly do have a hierarchy. To, to say that the hierarchy is a, is a result of the fall in our human sinful condition, and it's in itself is sinful, is really a distortion. Alright? Another section in here, one of the things he notices is Papa is Papa's always cooking in here, it seems. He's always making a meal. And uh, he noticed that in Papa's hands, there's scars. And he asked, yeah, where, where, where's that? And, and Papa basically says, well, we all three when we decided to become human, we took upon ourselves a human nature. Alright, now what does the Bible teach about God becoming flesh? Who became flesh? The Father didn't. The Father is not going to spend eternity with nail prints in His hands because the Father is Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Spirit. Christ is human. We will see Christ. We won't see the Father if by that you mean we see a, hum, a, a human formed figure of the Father, God is spirit. Alright? And God did not take upon himself, God the Father did not take upon himself a human nature. And not only that, but it even goes on to say, we all three, there's a quote in here where it ended, all three of them died on the cross. Well, all three of them did not die on the cross. Right? Who died on the cross? Christ died on the cross, not all three of them. Alright? And what you see is, is intermixed in this dialogue is, this, is this, this trinity that comes out that is not the trinity as seen in the scripture. Alright? And if you're not careful, what you wind up is you wind up with a, a view of God that is not the true view of God. For example, one of these, there's one quote here, it's about page 118, where Mac Kinsey, it's called Mac, is talking to Papa and basically asks her, you know, what about all those passages in the Old Testament about you being God of wrath? She's got a copy. Look at that. Okay. <laughs> She's got a copy. I think it's on page 118. And, and Papa says, well, you know, that, that's a total distortion of me. I'm not really a God of wrath. I mean, sin is its own destruction. Sin will eat you up and destroy you. I don't have to judge sin. Sin judges itself. Well, is there a sense in which that is true? But is that really what the Bible says? In fact, Papa basically says, I don't, I don't punish sin. I came to cure it. Uh, what, what's hell? Yeah, what did, Christ, what did the Father do to Christ on the cross? Why did God, Christ have to die on the cross? To, he was punished for my iniquities. He was bruised for my iniquities. So to say that, that, that I'm not a God of wrath, you've got that all mixed up, you need to rethink of me being the God of wrath thing, that fits into this modern concept of God as this God of love, you know, big, you know, loving kind of God. But the wrath, we don't want the wrath part of God. We don't want the judgment. We don't want all of that. In another section of the book, it talks um, about, um, about redemption. And, and basically what, I think it's Papa that says... Um, Look, I, I did everything I had to do. I reconciled the world to myself in Christ. I did everything I have to do. It's all up to you now to decide whether you're going to take the next step. Now, is there an element of truth to that? 
But is that really true? No. That's not really true. And one of the things that's missing in the book, for example, it's missing, it's totally missing um, a clear presentation of what Christ came to do on the cross. The idea of repentance is not mentioned here. The idea of faith in God is not mentioned. The idea of Christ being our substitute is not mentioned. None of those things are mentioned. None of those things are even talked about. Alright? Now, does it have some good points? Yeah, it does. I mean, one good point is at the end, McKenzie brought to the knowledge that, look, I need to trust God. Even though I don't understand why, God has a plan beyond my little world. I need to trust Him. I also need to forgive the guy who murdered my daughter. Is that true? Sure it is. All right. So there's a sense in which there are some good things here. The problem with this, folks, this is our problem, okay? This is our problem. This will lead you to develop a theology of the Trinity that is not based on the biblical definition of the Trinity, but on this fictional definition. Anybody remember um, Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti? Remember those books? Those books are fiction. You understand? Fiction is not true. They're fictional books. But what did those two fictional books do? If you remember, they developed in a completely... um, It it took by wildfire, the Christian church, a complete view of angelology, demonology, Satanology. There was a whole theology of Satan, angels, and demons that was derived from those books of fiction. And you had people praying for territorial demons. You know, you had territorial spirits. You had, you know, when things were going bad in your life, that was a demon on you. Um, I remember a certain church on the north coast would send their deacons to your house and they would walk around your house and pray that God would deliver your land from all any demons that were there. And they even took out a pair of scissors to cut the strings of bondage around your house. And a, a complete theology was based on some guy's fictional work. That's, that's what, we can't do that as Christians. Our theology needs to be based on the Word of God. That's fiction. Okay? Now, are there some elements of truth in what Peretti said? Of course there are. But that's not a theology of Satan, how Satan works and demons work. and That's not where you go. Another one is Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. Alright? That's fiction. Yet people have a complete theology of end time events based off of the Left Behind series. Their theology of end times events is based off a work of fiction. Not off the scripture, but off a work of fiction. Now, are there things in that book, those books, those set of books that are true? Sure. Is the big picture right? Yes. But then people fill in all of the details creating a theology of end time events that may or may not be what the Bible says at all. It's a fictional account. And that's the danger here. That's the danger you, create, you have a, a book of fiction, and there are some good things. The overall needing to forgive, needing to trust God, yes, that's good. But then you see the interaction between the members of the Trinity, almost in a, in a flippant kind of way. And here's another thing. Does God the Father, is God the Father ever seen in human form? Neither is the Spirit. Yet they are personified in human form in here. And in fact, Mackenzie asked him, why did, asked the father, said, well, your father, why did you show up as a black Afro-American woman? He said, well, I just need to destroy all your stereotypes of me. 
I got to get you to stop thinking like you, you just got to just go with the flow and forget about using your head and you got to get rid of all that stuff you learned in theology and, and rethink everything. You got to be careful with that. And see, one of the dangers is that when I read that, I approach it with a biblical theology. So I'm going to interpret it how? According to my biblical truth. Somebody else may not do that. They may not know any better. And that's why, for example, in the ECT document, I'm on a roll here, I'm sorry. But in the ECT document, you have a statement that says, we, remember that was the evangelicals and Catholics together? And they said, we both affirm that a man, a person is saved through faith, by Christ, through faith, on account of, by grace, through faith, on account of Christ. That's the exact word. You are saved by faith, through grace, on account of Christ. And everybody says, wonderful, the Catholics are Christians. No, they're not, because they mean something totally different. When I read that, I bring my theological words and my theological mindset to that, and I say, well, that's a true statement. But now put the word alone in there, and all of a sudden now we're different. Because Catholics don't believe that. Do they believe they're saved by Christ? Sure. They believe they're saved by grace? Yeah, well, you've got to work too. They believe salvation by faith? Yeah, but, you know, I've got to do my thing, I've got to go to Mass, and I've got to do whatever it is. So they mean something totally different. And that's the danger. That, did I muddy the water any? It's, it, theologically, what he's doing is, there's some allegories here. And see, the, Bunyan, the Pilgrim's Progress is totally different. Because in the Pilgrim's Progress, you don't see Pilgrim talking to the Father and talking to the Christ. and You don't see any of that stuff here. All right? And by the way, any time a human being found themselves in the presence of God, what happened to them? They went to pieces, right? If they were in, if they were in the human form, they went to pieces. I mean, Isaiah melted. You know, he said, "Damn me!" John fell down. Daniel had to be picked up off the ground. You know, to go walk in the presence of God. Hey, God, how you doing? Great to see you. You know. I just say that because there, there's a danger in this. There's a danger. And I don't think this guy's satanic. I'm not going to say the guy's demon-possessed or satanic or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you need to be careful, even well-meaning Christians that mean well and, and want to, to do the right thing, we've got to be careful how we say it and how we, how we portray truth. And the scripture is the definitive text, not a work of fiction. Alright, so if you want to know what the Trinity is like, don't go here. Go there. All right? Be careful. And I would say that unless you're really a strong Christian, you really have a good developed theology, don't read this book. Because you might wind up thinking about Christ and the Holy Spirit in terms that are not what the Scripture says. We're out of time. I'm sorry. Let me uh, close in prayer. And then we'll be done. Father, thanks for this day. Thanks for your grace to us. And pray that you'd help us remember and ponder what we've learned today. Thank you for this gorgeous day. In Christ's name, amen.